First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I'm Aaron Berg. I'm many things. A son, a husband, an immigrant, a dad. I'm also a Jew. And I fought every stereotype there is about us. I was a bodybuilder, a male stripper. I worked in the sex trade. I became a stand-up comedian. And I realized that to be Jewish is to be badass. Join me and celebrate all the badass Jews out there. And let me tell you, there are a ton. Business moguls, game changers, assassins. They come from every walk of life. This is Badass Jews, and I'm your host, Aaron Berg. My guest today has been shaping the culture for nearly four decades. He's been a trailblazer, revolutionizing the music business in a myriad of ways. He invented something called the Street Team, a breakthrough concept that changed the way urban music was marketed and promoted throughout the country. He signed a group called the Wu-Tang Clan to his then upstart record label Loud Records, which has become home to artists like Mob Deep, Big Pun, and so many others. His other company, SRC, has been at the forefront of the urban music business for decades. Steve Rifkin has been a force like no other. Central to his unstoppable impact is the most incredible story of family, a theme we see so often in the Jewish community. We're going to learn all about Steve, his late father, Jules, and the way in which the Rifkin legacy is continuing on today through his own kids. It's my honor to welcome to the show Steve Rifkin. Steve, welcome to Badass Jews. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a long intro because it's a lifetime in music. It's a family legacy that you're part of. It's so wordy because you took hip hop and made it this thing that probably wouldn't be as big as it was without you. And you came from very humble beginnings. Are you amazed at where you are right now? I don't look at it like... I don't look and say, oh, wow, these are all the things that I accomplished. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm a big basketball guy. So, like, if I had a great basketball game, all I said it was one game. You know, I never, I, I never looked back. So now, you know, I got sick in 2013. And for the last seven years, I've been really – I've been consulting some gigantic companies and just trying to figure out really what I want to do. Um, and then my kids pretty much got me out of retirement. Um, to feel good to be back at work. You know, I wake up, I walk the dogs, I do my meditation, look at the emails, you know, read some newspapers. And um, it's just about me just going back to work you know, and just trying to figure out what that new comfort zone is. If it's working out of the house or do I get an office eventually, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm enjoying working out of the house right this second. Um, my son's here with me, you know, so it's like, if I want to watch 
an old basketball game or watch an old basketball game. He played college basketball, so he's also a basketball junkie. Um, and he has his own record company. So it's like I'm almost learning from them just the new way of doing things, especially when, you know, with the whole digital aspect of music. So let's go back to a time before digital. Uh, born and raised Long Island. I would say a lovely part of Long Island, but you would say somewhat of a racist shithole at the time. Tell me about that. I mean, I still feel it's a racist shithole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's a beautiful town. It's, you know, where I lived. I the lived, name I of the town, of course, is? It's Merrick, Long Island. Right. Um, Big cultural divide there, right? Jews? Yeah. Italians. Jews, Italians on one side, on the south side. You cross the tracks, you're on the north side, and it's all Irish and Nazis. Yeah. And all and all they would want to do every single day is kick the shit out of us. People love to try and kick the shit out of Jews, but then once in a while they find badass Jews that don't like to have the shit kicked out of them, and you're yeah. one of them. Now let, let me let me well, say this. Well, but, but, but besides, but let me. I, I'll tell you. I think I you know, I, I told the story once before, where my parents, not on purpose, they sent me to a jail school. Yes. Right. Not so on purpose. It was not, an accidental not, not, jail school sentence. Yeah. Uh, so there was a kid in my class, and he goes, what are you in for? No, I'm sleeping at home. This is not like a sleepaway school, you know. Um, I'm like, I'm in for nothing because everybody says that. I'm like, I'm here for nothing. I go, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, so finally he just wouldn't stop. So I said, you know, I stabbed somebody. I made up a, I made up a full story, complete yeah. lie, just so he could get off my back. I'm like, what are you in for? He goes, I blew up my house. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, you know, and I tell my parents, and my parents think I'm, you know, think I'm full of shit. They don't believe what's going on. And then they don't know it's to jail school. They think they're sending you to like a nice boarding school. No, not a boarding school, just a school for people who are dyslexic and just, you know, just whatever. And then finally, I um I still have the scar, which you guys can't see. And um, they said, well, what happened? I said, it's from the handcuffs. My mother says, you're so funny. Yeah. I'm like, ma, I'm not bullshitting. I go, they cuffed me. They, and she says, what do you mean they cuffed me? I go, walk me to the bus one day when they, you know, it was the little yellow bus, not a big school bus. And she saw there were people cuffed, you know. So they got me out of the school. And, you know, the first few days, you know, there, there were fights, you know, between the Jews. And the Jews and the Italians are on one side and the Irish and the Nazis. So I want to say two weeks later, the guy who blew up the house, now we're 13, 14 years old, and he's 6'2", 200 pounds, right? And he walks into the class and he goes, hey, Steve. I'm like, I almost shit it on myself. I'm like, what the fuck? So he told, and he lived on the north side, he told everybody that I was this crazy motherfucker that I stabbed. You know, he went from me from stabbing one person to me stabbing a whole army, which, again, was a total, like, a, just a total lie. And so me and my crew were never touched ever again. So you become this made man at 13 over this story by... Which is, the- which is not a true story. I was just doing it to get him off my back, you know. But, but it's amazing how this kind of starts... 
the road that you go down because it's a very non-traditional road for a quote unquote Jew in Long Island. Now, let me make this very clear. <laughs> You're not incredibly Jewish, right? You're Jew-ish. Not a, it's not a big part of your no, life. I'm Jew related. Jew related would be the best way to say it. <laughs> Uh, but you're 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 exposed to a certain type of anti-Semitism very early on because of where you're brought up. You befriend the Italian side. You learn that okay, these Irish people and these Nazis on the other side of town are going to be assholes that I'm going to have to deal with my whole life. And it's this kind of watershed moment for you. you. There's this great story about you where you're playing basketball playing against this other town and it is it's a black team right and your yeah. coach is scared for your team to play balls to the wall because he's like we can't compete against these black guys tell me what you do this is a great badass jew young story so the star of the team was a friend of mine we used to play pickup together and um i was a sophomore i think i don't i, I whatever grade I was, I was like coach you got to put me in and he goes what are you gonna do I'm going to say, I'm going to show you. And my coach was Irish. He go, I said, I'm going to show you that everybody's blood is the same. And he's, he goes, what do you mean? I'm like, you're scared. I'm like, I don't understand it. We all bleed the same color. Nothing's going to happen to us. And he's looking at me like, you know, with four eyes or whatever it was. And he puts me in. Now, we should be winning the game by 30 points. We were favored to go undefeated that year. And we're down by 20. And my friend who's, there's only one guy who I would punch because he was a friend of mine. And he was like three times my size. He's bringing up the ball and he's 6'4", I'm 5'7". And I go to punch him in the face. And I draw, and I, and, and, I, and I, but not out of hatred. To show the coach that everybody's blood is the same. Yeah. And he goes, what are you doing? You're like, he grabs me. He goes, you're going to get yourself killed. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, I got to show the coach that everybody's blood is the same. He's scared of you. You know, and he goes, and he like took me into the other locker. He took me into his locker room. So I I wouldn't, you know, and he made sure I was cool. And like, it was, it was a surreal thing, you know. And, um, and that's really when I learned about racism. And it wasn't necessarily about the Jews fighting the Irish and the Nazis. It was about how, my coach, who was Irish, was scared to play against a black school. Yeah. And half that team, just to let you know, we all played, to, we were all f- cool. We all played together in this one park, which was like in the neutral. So there wasn't going to be anything, but the coach was shitting in his pants and he fucked the whole game up. And I, and then, you know, and then that night, you know, my dad said, what you did was stupid, but I understand what you did. You know, and not everybody sees what you see. Not everybody sees the good in, in people. Not everybody sees the, be- the bad in people. And it's not about your skin color. It's about who you are as a human being. Uh, it's this amazing thing that you acquire this higher sense because you were dyslexic at the time. You couldn't read and write. This is mm-hmm. why you were sent to the school that you were sent to. But yet you had this higher sense of equality and you were able to instill it through actual practice like what you did 
is a practical way of showing somebody, look, we're all the same. We all bleed the same color. And to see that this racism comes from the generation ahead of you, you know, it's your coach that's teaching it to you. That's like, oh, no, we can't compete against these black guys because it's a totally different ball game. For you to break that down is an amazing thing. Now, your, your grandfather told you you're either going to end up dead or in jail. So you decide you leave Long Island. I, I don't Miami. decide. You don't decide. Don't decide. Who decides for you? My grandfather. Decides, go on the road, go to, go to South Florida. If you met my grandfather, he's a, you know, you really can't say no to him. Out of fear. I mean, he was really, I was petrified of him. Yeah. Um, but I loved him more than life. So he called me down to Florida. And, um, you know, I, I, I told my parents, like, I need a ticket to get to Florida. He goes, for what? I said, grandpa wants to talk to me. And my father looked, huh? Like he thought I was like, again, conning him, you know, like just to go. And um, whatever happened, you know, the next day, you know, I fly down to Florida and, you know, he had a little, um, he had a little sunroom in, in Florida. It was just a couch that I sat on, a chair and a TV. And that's where he held his meetings and nobody was allowed in there except for him or whoever he invited to go in. And um, he just said, you could end up dead or in jail. Go work for your father. I said, my father's not going to want me to work for him. I think my father's embarrassed by me. He goes, I'll, he goes, I'll talk to him. Yeah. So whatever they said, um, they said, and, you know, two weeks later, I went down, you know, to get to get some food because I was driving to Alabama and um, Atlanta. You know, a Jewish grandmother, you know, she cooked me, you know, food for a week. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's how it started. The two weeks was supposed to be two weeks and it ended up being like three years. And it, did get, and it did get me out of trouble and it got me to see the country and it got me to learn how to survive on my own, um, zigzagged across the country and met some great, great people. Uh, a sense of purpose, like a career, can really alter the way a man's life goes. Because I had, I got arrested, I got sent away to this school, and then it was my interest in writing and pushing the envelope that was able to veer me back. You had a similar experience, but it it goes throughout your family's through line. So tell me about your dad. Not everybody realizes the incredible legacy that's in your family because your dad did something, you do something, your son does something. How important was your dad in terms of black music in America? Um, I want to say more important than me. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad started working for a guy by the name of High Weiss, who is Barry Weiss's father. Barry, Barry was a chairman of Universal East Coast Music Group. He was judge. Uh, President and CEO of RCA, Zamba, Jive Records. Just a great, great guy. His dad was an amazing, his dad still might be alive. Um, his dad is, was an amazing, amazing guy. And High gave my dad his first job. Then my dad started managing a DJ by the name of Tommy Smalls, who was a, a black DJ, and the station was WWRL, and he was the most powerful DJ in the country. Um, and they had a club up in Harlem called Smalls Paradise. Mm-hmm. So from there, my from managing Tommy to starting managing other radio personalities and program directors all across the country, MGM came in and um, offered him head of promotion. 
And so with that, he, I think he was there for two years and then became president of MGM. I don't know how long he was really there, you know, and, and he hired a guy by the name of Buzzy Willis to replace him in the promotion side. Buzzy was a black guy. So he was visiting top 40 stations, country stations, you know, and whatever they called R&B music at the time. I think they were calling it soul music. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then when my dad would go on the road, you know, he would sneak Buzzy into the hotels with him. You know, this is the early 60s. I was just born. Um, well, late 50s, you know, and he would... W- so and they couldn't sneak Buzzy into the hotel. My dad would stay with Buzzy at that hotel. He didn't, again, how I didn't understand how my coach was nervous. My dad didn't understand, you know, white hotels, black hotels. He just saw people for who they were. Yeah, it's this uh, beautiful, almost enlightened ignorance that you bring and through practice, it brings people together. It's a beautiful thing that, that your family does. It's, go back to the trajectory. You're with your dad for a little bit. Uh, then you come up with this concept called the street team. Tell me how that was born and how it was developed and how it changed music in America. So it was developed when I was going on the road for those three to four years just meeting people you're 18 you're 19 and i would just start sending you music and say hey can you help me with this record can you have your go to your you know and it was back college radio at the time for me and, and this is like, a different time for people listening now it, you could do stuff on the internet now that back then you had to physically do you had to mail shit to people instead of just yeah. hit a button and go here it is exactly so i put it together um and I moved to LA, you know, managing New Edition. And then when me and New Edition, and I was managing him with my father and uncle, um, when we parted ways with New Edition, I was pretty much on my own. So I was like, you know what? I, I got. I don't think your dog likes New Edition. I don't know who they're barking at. This too. Hey, you guys got to shut up. I got two pits. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Champ, no, get over here. They sound beautiful. Yeah. Um, so, new edition. I'm in new edition. When we parted ways, I've just been. Um, oh, you know what it is? There's somebody. Let me close the door. Oh, somebody at the door. You got to grab a handgun. Go outside. What's going on? No, uh, there. Uh, no, not have to. There was somebody. Yeah, <laughs> no, they, they love New Edition. There's a handyman on the next door neighbor's roof. Me being on the road, I met a guy by the name of Hiram Hicks. And Hiram was based in Philly, and Hiram became, and still is, a very close friend of mine. And um, Hiram came up to New York with Mike Bivens. And um, they said that they were having some problems with their road management. I said, well, you know, I'm 24 at the time. I was like, let me um, introduce you to my dad and uncle. You know, and I'm sure they could solve the problem. So they came up to the office. Um, and then six months later, we were managing the guys. So when, when we parted ways after the management, I started the Stephen Rifkin Company. And I started um, just promoting records. And just from a video standpoint, where it was MTV and the local video stations, 
and um, MTV and retail and just the local video outlets across the country. And I said, you know what? I'm going to put this network of people together. And I, I didn't have much money to my name at the time. And um, I took like my last $3,000 and I made a brochure. I made like 500 brochures and I sent it to everybody in my Rolodex. And I was going to New York um, for a wedding. And then I decided to stay in New York after the wedding for a few days to take these meetings. And um, I came back to LA with $140,000 worth of business. That fast. It's a success right out of the gate. Yeah. It's insane to me. Now, enter your friend Rich. Uh, Rich Isaacson, corporate lawyer. He's unhappy being a lawyer. You guys get together. You form Loud Records. What's the Loud goal a, look, of Loud Records? Loud, Loud was already formed. Yeah. Um, and But, you know, I think the one good thing of my strength is I know what my weaknesses are. And Rich was very methodical. And just it was always two plus two equals four. You know, because of my dyslexia, I would say, you know, 16 minus 12 equals four. <laughs> it would still equal four, but, it, you know, it would be the harder way of the, you know, whatever it was. And um, Rich was amazing. I, I couldn't ask for more of a, per, a perfect partner. Um, you know, he really rolled the dice. You know, he was making six figures to come to a startup. You know, his parents must have thought he was crazy. Yeah. And whatever it was. Um, and we worked it out and we went on a, an amazing, amazing run. As you know, I couldn't ask for a better partner. We talk about this often where people that come from Jewish backgrounds sometimes have a certain amount of privilege to pursue their dreams because their parents have busted their asses so that they want to give their kids a better life. So it lets the kids go off and do their own thing. When you talk about rich who kind of leaves that cushy existence that he he made for himself i see a flip side whereas even though you had this opportunity that you could have gone and work for your dad right away instead you go this side route and then come back and become a self-made man there has to be a lot of pride to that again i don't look at it like oh wow i did this i, I just you know to me you know even to this day you know when i wake up in the morning and i'm brushing my teeth and i'm looking at myself in the mirror it's like, all right, what do I, what, I, I got to take care of business. I got to make sure my daughter's school is paid for. I got to, you know, my youngest son is becoming a, is, is a rapper now. I got to make sure, you know, what's going on at the studio. I got to check in with that. I want to make sure my son, Alex, even though he's older, the oldest, and he has his own label, I need to make sure that he's straight, not where I'm giving him stuff, that just where he's doing right with his company so he could grow his company and let him experience the good, the bad, the ugly. And I, and I still care about my ex-wife and make sure that, you know, that, that she's okay. So it's never like I'm sitting on my high horse. I, I, I don't, I don't look at it that way. I just look at it where it's like, it's time to get to work today. You got I mean, shit to I, do. You don't have, yeah, you don't I mean, have time for these hoity toity emotions. You got shit. To yeah. Do. You know, so, I, I make a, I make a list every day of the people I got to call and the things I got to do. So, Real quick, you signed Twista, the fastest rapper in Guinness Book of World Records. You signed the Alcoholics. Little known fact, you don't drink. That's what I have written down. I hope that it still stays <laughs> that way. But then you you go next level. Uh, this is what people say you will be the most famous for. You sign a group from Staten Island, crew called Wu-Tang Clan. 
Walk us through that process. It was um, beginning of 1990. Why do you go to Staten Island? Do you go there to find them or do you see them somewhere nah, else? No. Nah, so I'm going to let me tell you the story. All let right. me tell you the story. Okay, take it easy. I didn't have to go. I didn't have to go anywhere. All right. My college rep in the L.A. office is talking to my street team guy in Flint, Michigan, who was at a college radio station. He was the music director at the college radio station. And he tells, his name is Jason Staten, the guy who lives in Michigan, to Trevor Williams, who's my college guy, he goes, there's this record that's blowing up. You got to hear the record. Trevor loses his mind, comes to my house. Um, he goes, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. You got to hear this. This is the best fucking thing in the world. You got to call this guy. I'm hearing the record. The record has no hook. It's different. I'm like, what the fuck is this? But Trevor's in my ass like there's no tomorrow. Um, and I'm trying to reach Rizza, who's then by the name of going Prince Rakim. We spoke once or twice. I told her I'm going to be in New York um, these days. I was in New York on my 31st birthday. And um, he just shows up at the RCA office. And the office was a small office where there was a desk, a chair, and a stereo. And I'm with East Swift from the Alcoholics. And we're just talking. And the receptionist goes, there's a Prince Rakim here for you. And I, and I grab him, I'm like, man, I've been trying to reach you, this, that, so on, so on. Cool, we start talking, he goes, the guys are downstairs, can I bring them up? I'm like, yeah. They come up, it's like, I feel like we're in a, a crowded club. Like, we, we, you can't move. They put on the record, they stop performing the record, lie to the record. Some guy comes running through the door and says, that's that shit. And runs away. I never saw the guy ever again. I got like a million dollar check. I got, I got, I got a million dollar check waiting for this guy. Yeah. Right. So, um, and we sign him on the spot. Right. And Rizzo says, the only thing is I want the right to shop solo deals. I'm like, you could, you could have that right. Just give us the first right. And I learned that from new edition because, you know, when Bobby was trying to leave the group, this, not Bobby, Ralph, when Ralph was trying to leave the group, I was like, the group will always be bigger than the whole, unless you're Michael Jackson, right? So, and that, and that was it. The deal was done. If I met them on the day of my, I met him on March 1st or March 2nd, was I was in for my 31st birthday. The deal was done by the end of March. Now, somebody said that this, uh, the signing happens on a Jewish holiday. Does that ring a bell uh, to you? Yeah, Passover. Yeah. Rich signed it. Rich, I was already at my parents' house. And this is what, you know, and Rich is much more religious than I am. We grew up together. He stayed in and made sure everybody signed. Like he had, I think, Jizzo Old Dirty sign on the top of the cab as he was taking the train, the cab to Penn Station to get on the train. That That's the moment where, and, and I know you don't reflect on shit like this, but that's the moment where everything kind of blows up, right? Do you start like balling at this point in time? Are you like, okay, we're, we're made guys now. Let's enjoy this life a little bit. <laughs> nah, so I decide... I'm going to spend in New York. I'm going to spend the summer in New York. It's a horrible time. It smells like piss and there's rats yeah. running everywhere. Okay. It was great though, but you know, um, so. Steve, what summer is this? What summer is this? 93. And the record's out. The record's out. And okay. I'm at, and I'm at a club or a release party for Outcast, And, um, the M E T H O D man record came on and I was remember talking to somebody and all of a sudden everybody just ran to the, uh, dance floor and just started and I was like I remember that and that feeling was like me losing my virginity all over again I mean it was just I mean it was 
the most incredible, euphoric, like I just sat there and watched everybody dance to one of my records and the place was packed. And I remember going, you know, telling everybody at RCA what happened. I remember telling Rich and um, everything just um, from there just took off like a bat out of hell. And it, and it became a cultural, phen- I mean, Wu-Tang became a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, yes. So, I mean, but but you're talking about everything just fell into place. Like, we were at RCA, we weren't getting much love from RCA, this, that, so, and so on. Then we meet a guy by the name of Mojo Nicosia, who's not Jewish, but could be Jewish, right? And Mojo worked at RCA, and he became a brother to us, you know, and while he was at RCA, before he came to Loud, he was our eye, ears, you know, he was just, like, he became instant family, and he went on the road with these guys and literally stuck his neck out for his job, for everything, um, to literally help break the records. And it was a perfect one-two punch. So, you know, we had a, um, not an album release party, but we had a, their first appearance in LA, we did it at a club called Grand Slam, which Prince owned. And we had the who's who of LA, and it was ridiculous. Now comes the album release party that we were doing in New York at Webster Hall. And me and Rich are, you know, leaving dinner and we'll walk into the place. And there's a line not only around the block, around the block twice and, pl- and the street is shut down, right? So I'm like, not even realizing it's for us. Like, and then before Webster Hall, it was a club called The Ritz which my dad owned with a guy by the name of Jerry Brandt and my uncle. Um, so I was more worried like how my parents going to get in and how was I going to get in. I knew the back way from back from the Ritz days. And my dad, you know, not everybody had cell phones. He had a car phone and he called me. He goes, meet me at the back door, right? The Ritz was on 11th Street and 12th Street, but there was a back door on 13th Street where you would go underneath. And it was, it was absolutely fucking nuts. And that, that's when I was like, this is the craziest thing in the world. Did your, did your dad, you know, here's a guy who had this unbelievable career in black music. When he saw Wu-Tang and what Wu-Tang became, I mean, I'm sure he was unbelievably proud of you. Did he get it? Did he understand it? I never, I never, had, that, I never had that conversation with him. Yeah. I think, I think we were all just mesmerized, like, you had the who's who, not only of the music industry, but the who's who of New York. Like some of the biggest artists, not like painters, you know, like it was, it was just so surreal. Not one ounce of violence, 4,000 people at that fucking thing. And you couldn't move, you couldn't move inside and you couldn't move outside. At that point, sorry, Aaron, at that point, it's like, you know, this, this record label, this risk Rich Isaacson took this thing's going to be legit, you know, like you had to kind of double down on loud records at that moment. Right. Yeah. So what we did was the album came out November 9th, two days ago. Right. And, um, we waited till January to renegotiate our deal. And we doubled down, had more success with mob deep doubled down again. You know, we, we were changing the deal every six months. So you get all this juice from Wu-Tang, then you get Mob Deep, you roll in huge, 
everything's going great. You're basically getting the call shots. Is money rolling in or is RCA making all the money off you guys? RCA is making a shitload of money, but you know, we're getting crazy amount in overhead. I didn't dream, but I had the marketing company through the street team. And that's where, you know, that was with, you know, I always said, I'll get rich off loud, but, um, but I'll get to see the fuck you money off of, off the marketing company. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, Mob Deep had a lyric in the song Survival of the Fittest. You're a Jew. You've immersed yourself in an urban culture. Uh, Havoc had a line, I'm like a Jew saving dough so I can big whip. Did you or Rich as Jews have issues with that? Or are you like, this is just observational art? I never, never once questioned either, whatever, you know. Yeah. As long as you, as long as you didn't say you're going to kill my mother. That's it. My, you can say whatever the fuck you want to say. Words. Religion becomes this system of beliefs and you're like, whatever you believe, you believe. But this is what I as an individual know. As long as you don't say you're going to kill my mother, we're good. Yeah. What if a rapper did a song, but you didn't even know him, and he was like, I'm going to kill your mother, but it was just about somebody else's mother, would you be offended by that lyric, or does anything offend you at all? Um, if he was talking about somebody else's mother, I would say, wow, that's fucked up, and really try and figure out, uh, you know, I would try and make peace. Yeah. That. And if it was my mother, he would never have a tongue. There is. <laughs> I fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> the cutting out the tongue is a thing that's really missing nowadays. Cause a lot of the time when you deal with like online people, like we deal with cancel culture people in comedy, you're like, I just got to bump into this, somebody, this person somewhere and just pop them once in the mouth and make a, but the cut the tongue out thing is old school. Cause it makes it so that they can't talk, you know, <laughs> now it's like, I got to break their fingers so that they can't be on the <laughs> internet anymore. <laughs> Um, w was there any incidences? I mean, you're so immersed in urban culture and so influential simultaneously. There's this great, um, there's like this coinciding between Jewish and black people, especially in New York and in the arts. It, was there any instance where people uh, held ill will against you or judged you differently because A, you weren't black or B, because they knew you were Jewish? I'm sure, but nobody has ever said anything to me about it, and I couldn't really worry about that. I know if you were in business with me, I'm going to be good to you, and I'm going to be loyal to you, and I'm going to give you everything that I said I was going to give you. There's this uh, really beautiful thing about you. I said it before. It's this, like, enlightened ignorance, and it's more people should should be like that, and I don't mean it as a negative thing. It's, it's a beautiful thing because you know yourself so well, you know? Uh, at some point, you sell 50% of your label to RCA, and you get uh, what I'm to understand is a big check. I've gotten a big check. The government sent me a stimulus check for $1,200 some months ago. Uh, was it bigger than that stimulus check that I was sent that was signed by Donald Trump personally? Yeah, Donald Trump didn't sign the check, but it was just a little bit bigger. <laughs> uh, so you, you realize you're living your dream. Most people would be done at this point. You, you got money in the bank. You could sail off into the sunset and be like, fuck everybody. I'm going to Greece. I'm just going to eat octopus all the time. Uh, tell me what happens, why you decide to build it up. There, there's a point where you leave RCA and you go to Sony and then there's some crumbling. What happens there? Um, I made a mistake. I saw a shoe 
that I wanted and the shoe didn't fit. I should have stayed at BMG. Um, I should have stayed at BMG and been the big fish in the small pond instead of being the small fish in the ocean at Sony. And this is nothing against Tommy Matola. I love Tommy to death to this day. But, you know, when you work for a, a, a corporation like that, there's a, there's a lot of jealousy. And, you know, loud, you know, the artist came first. And my insecurities, I wanted to be on the playing field with all the other, with all the different chairmans and, and presidents, you know, and Tommy was giving me the third major inside the Sony system. And I didn't realize there'd be such bickering and backstabbing going on from the people at Sony against me, thinking that we were all on the same side, you know, and I was just miserable. And after three years, I told Tommy, I can't take this anymore. I'm leaving. And then do you take a break? How do you pick no, up the pieces? No, I, um, I left in September of 2002. And then on December 18, 2002, I had a new deal with Universal. And, but, it was me by, but it was me by myself. It wasn't with Rich and my brother. And you start SRC, but this time it's called Street Records Corporation. Records Corporation, yes. How was it a reinvention of yourself? It wasn't a reinvention. It was more, this is where like my competitiveness came in. I was going to show everybody like lab wasn't an accident and I'm going to show the world that I'm going to do it again. And it was more about sticking it up, you know, the people that not again, not Tommy, but everybody else at Sony's ass just saying, Hey, fuck you motherfuckers. You belong on a street level as like an emperor on a street level. You don't belong as a butler in an ivory tower. You know what I mean? You you have this sensibility to you where it's like you're you're a man of the people and you get thrown into this other bullshit world where all of a sudden you see it is backstabbing and it's all shit talking. It's not about the art. You belong. But that but 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 but, but I made that choice. I wasn't forced to do it. I could have said no. And that was, but again, I said it earlier, that, that, that's coming from my own insecurity because I wanted to play, instead of, like you're saying, being the king of the street corner, Yeah. you know, I wanted to play that game with the big boys. If I wanted to sign something for $2 million, you know, that that's all that's all ego and, and insecurity on my, on my part. I should have stayed at BMG and just been the people's champion. Yeah. And that's and that's what I did at SRC. Even though SRC wasn't as cool as loud, SRC might have been even been bigger. You know, I had Akon, that was the biggest artist in the world yeah. at one point. So, um, versatile, you know, I, very versatile. Yeah, I remember I mean, he I did went, like stuff with Lonely Island and stuff. You know, doing comedy yeah. songs. Um, how's how's that compare when you go from like Wu Tang being your golden cow to a dude like Akon. Obviously, the art evolves. How did you feel about it? Because Akon had some more like poppy elements to him. Uh, did you just feel like that's part of how this genre is shifting? No, I, I just loved his music. When I when I played it for Universal, I said this would be the biggest artist of my career, and everybody laughed in my face. Yeah, and I took and I took offense to that. So now it was like, fuck you, Universal. Fuck you, Sony. 
right? I went to my right hand, who I brought with me. I said, Gabby, his wife was pregnant. I said, you, you, you do the east and the south. I'll do the north and the west. And if your wife goes into labor, I'll send you a plane. Yeah. And we, and we single-handedly broke Akon ourselves. It's the old street team mentality, right? Where it's like you do it yourself. Well, it was just about, again, it was more, I'm looking at it more as a, a competitive thing. It was like, they're laughing in my face. I'm like, who the fuck are you to laugh in my face? Nobody still sold more records than I did from the la- from loud. And these motherfuckers are laughing. I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. And I had good, and I had really good friends at Universal that were laughing. Aaron, I want to jump in. I got a question for Steve because I, I do know Gabby and I remember he was on the street team or, or in charge of the street team at one point. And he's a guy that you really took under your wing. And, and then he went on, obviously, with you at SRC, at Steve Rifkin, at Street Records Corp to have great success, but then in his own right to manage French Montana and become a big deal himself. One of the sort of like underrated stories of your career is identifying executive talent. What do you look for when you see a guy like Gabi, you know, or some of these other guys, because I know you're, you're dreaming it all up again with Loud, again right now with new guys in, in, in important positions for you. What do you look for? And, and the same thing with, uh, with uh, Scooter Braun. You, you're, you're really good at finding these guys. What do you look for? Looking for the it fact. I'm looking at like how you sign a uh, sign an artist. When um how I met Gabby. Gabby, I think was 17 when, when I first met him. Um, when I was doing that tour down south on a on the tour bus, his brother was headed the street team for us, and I'm in the back of the bus by myself, just not reminiscing and just like it was my first time being on the road in a long time, and it was you know on a tour bus, this that so on and so on. And there was just somebody cracking jokes. I had no idea who it was. And I was belly laughing, you know, and I opened up the door and it's like Gabby's holding court, you know, in front of the bus. And um, I said, you're staying with me. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I I would take a whole floor. Like it would be security. Like when I would check into a hotel, I would take a, a whole floor just, just for me. And I made him like my assistant on the stuff. I said, this is your responsibilities. I showed him a bag. It was like around 20 to 30 grand in cash in the bag. Um, I said, you're going to hold on to this bag and we, we're going to count the money every morning and every night, make sure nothing's missing. And then you'll bring my shit from the bus. I didn't bring um, the clothes. I would always buy clothes in the city for two days and then the next. So by the time we were done, he had like 10 bags around his neck and the bus wouldn't be able to park in the front of <laughs> So he would walk with like, he would be like choking himself. He had like a cut on his neck from one of the, from one of the bags. But, you know, I, I was just fortunate enough to just have loyal, loyal people around me at, at, at all times. There's uh, the story of family success and there's, the the prime example of the American dream. Your family's built a legacy. Uh, your dad was there. You've been at the height of it. Talk about your sons and how they're carrying it forward and what you've told them about succeeding. You know, Alex, you know, his label is like two years old. He is an artist now that's on the verge of breaking. 
He found another artist out of Miami that's going viral right the second as, as we talk. And, you know, we had a conversation this morning and I was like, yo, just keep your head down and keep on working and really engage yourself in the culture, you know, from, from all aspects of it. Um, he goes, well, how do you do it? I said, step, you know, a step at a time, you know, get on. Well, it's tough to get on the road right now because of COVID. But when I said, have a good flight, that was my son. I was talking to, he's going to Seattle to see one of his arts. Um, so with that, I said, you know, just keep your head down. And, um, he was a basketball player. So, and he played D one basketball and it was just like, put that work ethic that you had from basketball into this and you'll be fine. And then my youngest son is an artist, you know, he's rapping, he's been in the studio, um, been in the studio every day for the last three weeks. And my, my kids are interracial. So with Ryan, he's the darkest out of all my kids and I won't let him drive. Yeah. Um, just because of what's going on. Right. So how does he get around? Uber. Okay. Um, and he doesn't really, and he's 19 years old. And so he get mad really, at you for that, even though it comes from yeah, a he place gets mad. Low. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he, he wants his freedom. But I'm like, he had the same freedom, I mean, of, of Uber. I mean, so, you know, where he lives and where his friends live, you know, there's not that many people that live that close to him. So each ride would be a half hour. It would be on freeways, this, that, so on, so on. And I'm like, nah, man, I'm not letting you get on the 101 by yourself. God forbid if you get pulled over, you know. Yeah. So... They're not going to see that you're half white or that, you know, if, you have, if they think you have to, wish they're going to keep the shit out of you anyway. Steve, in terms of him being a rapper, where does that line, where's the line in terms of you helping him? Like, how do you approach that? Well, he got me out of retirement. Like I said, that's why, I, that's why I'm re- really restarting loud. I see. To usher him along. Right. So, and, uh, and this way I could also teach Alex a little bit more since Alex will be managing him. So your kids are what keep you going at this point in terms yeah, of the business. I, I, you know, and then my daughter, you know, I'm hoping she becomes a lawyer, but she go, she's going to NYU and she's in charge of all social media for all of us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. How's, her, uh, how's she doing at it? She's getting you guys lots of likes, lots of hits. She's, I mean... She doesn't want to do like I frustrate her, so she doesn't want to really work with me that much. Yeah, because I'll I'll just post something for the sake of posting it, and then she'll be like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And you know, I won't double double check the spelling. I won't put a period here, a comma there. <laughs> that that's part of my dyslexia. Steve, that so, happened to me uh, this morning. I posted this thing for Badass Juice Hot Sauce, which is available from Silk City Hot Sauce, and if you enter the code badass you get 20 percent off the hot sauce and the hot sauce is so good and then i realized oh i forgot to send the tweet badass juice hot sauce available from silk city hot sauce 20 percent off with the code badass did you know that no no i just plugged that there you go i didn't even put that tweet up i just have to fit that in somewhere in the show uh it's a different thing because it's like she's taking on that street team mentality of yours where it's like let's get the word out but now it's this different thing where it's all insta it's all twitter it's going to be tiktok it it's a crazy time 
How do you deal with the change that you've seen over these many generations? I, um, when Instagram first started, I didn't even know what, you know, they got on Instagram and I guess they opened up an account for me. Right. So when did Instagram start? 2012? I think so. 2011? Maybe, Let's yeah. just say 2012. So say eight years ago, right? So they're 11 years old and um, they open up this Instagram account for me. I have no idea what Instagram is. I don't even think I have it on the phone. And then Ryan, my youngest son calls me. He goes, how do you have 2000 people following you on Instagram? I'm like, what's Instagram? Yeah. He goes, it's an app. This, that. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I go, who put me on? He goes, me and Caroline. He goes, but why would 2000 people follow you if you didn't even post a picture? I said, Ryan, I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they lived across the street from me. I was in Florida, right? So they come. I still had no idea what it is. I said, Ryan, maybe it's because of loud. I have no idea. Um, but it, but it was funny. But I just learned it from them. I didn't even know what the fuck TikTok was. Yeah, it's insane. You know, so you know, and I found out about TikTok. He has a video that went viral. That like maybe like I think ten million views. Yeah. Right, and they're talking about it. You know, at dinner one, I'm like, what the fuck is TikTok? You know, and they show, and I still like, I'm on it, but I don't like. I find it annoying. Yeah, I don't. I don't so dance, so I haven't put yeah. myself on it yet. Yeah. So let let me run these words by you: the alcoholics, Wu Tang Clan, Mob Deep, Dead Prez, Big Pun, Three Six Mafia, David Banner, Akon. The legacy's insane. What is the secret sauce to picking this many winners? I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Just luck. Just luck. It, it, but it'd be luck, Steve, if it happened a couple of times. You know, maybe it'd be luck if it happened. To, but that many, come on. There's something that, there's something more visceral that you're tuned into. I mean, with, da- with David Banner, I think, you know, I was at Interscope Records taking a piss. And, and I heard two guys talking about him. And um, the second I got in my car, I called Gabby. I was like, have you heard of this David Banner? He goes, yeah, man, the record's really starting to make some noise in, um, in the South. And Little Flip was the last artist I signed to Loud and who was on the record. So I said, who's managing him? Who can we speak to? He goes, I'll, get, I'll call you back in five minutes. And then um, he told me it was a woman by the name of Wendy Day. And Wendy was a good friend. And just, with Banner, was just being at the right place at the right time and then knowing Wendy. And they just, I got them on a plane and... They came out to LA and the, and the deal was done. Um, you know, Akon, you know, a friend of mine just brought it to me. You know, so I, I think everybody knew that I was fair and I'm transparent and that I'll go the extra mile for the artist. So people would just come to me knowing that I would do right by the artist. So I think maybe that's the secret sauce. And they're all self-contained too. They all produce and write their own stuff. I think there's this integrity that you have that makes people trust you with their careers and their longevity. And that translates to success. Mm-hmm. That's how I look at it in an analytical standpoint. There's this longstanding relationship between Jews and black people as it pertains to the arts, but specifically hip hop and rap music. List of Jews and hip hop's undeniable. People like yourself, Cohen, Ruben, Rosenberg, just some why 
What do you make of this and what makes us so simpatico as groups of people? I think with, you know, with Leor, Rick, Paul, um, myself, I think we just have a compassion for people. Um, you know, Rick, you know, is just a good, loving person where the music just comes first. And however he could help, he's going to help again, no matter what color you are. Paul, you know, same, same, same thing. You know, Paul is just an amazing, amazing guy. And one of the nearest guys, Leor, you know, once you're with him, you're with him for life. As long as he feels you're not going to cross him and he's going to go the extra mile and he'll do what he has to do for you and for himself. So I think it's just really, it's about ethics, right? Yeah. You know, you want to treat people for how you, you want to be treated. Final question. What is your message to young Jews out there trying to live their dream? What is my message to young Jews out there? Yeah. Or just... Yeah, young Jews that, that want to overcome struggle, strife, live their dream. Live it. And just, you know, if somebody says no, don't take it as no. Just figure out a way how to knock down that door and get into that house, as long as it's done legally. Yeah. Follow your dream, follow, you know, follow, and follow your instincts. Don't be scared to ask for help. Amazing. That's what Steve, I thank you, man. This was great. This is yeah. one of the best interviews I ever did. I really enjoyed this. Dude, thank you. You're, you're such a pleasure to talk to, man. And it's, uh, yeah, from the heart. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. We'll let you know when it drops. And uh, yeah. congratulations right. on everything, man. Okay. Appreciate it.